From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Maria Corpus, and today I'm talking to Jennifer Ling Dachuk, a visual artist whose exhibition, Eat Bitterness, is on display through September 17th at Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts. I'm always putting up a wall or a battle or getting ready for the question of what are you? And that is like the biggest question I negotiate in my work. And I think about that with every material. Whereas like my Chinese cousins, whenever people ask them, where are they from? It's like they're always treated as perpetual foreigner. Whereas when people ask me, what are you? I feel like they're treating me as an object that needs to be authenticated. Datchuk is a ceramicist based in San Antonio, Texas whose work incorporates porcelain, textiles, and even human hair to explore fragility, femininity, identity, and her personal history. Stay tuned for our conversation after this break. If you're enjoying the type of content you get here at Riverside Chats, conversations that go in-depth on art, politics, and everything in between, please consider becoming a supporter of the show. You can find a link in the show notes that allows you to give a recurring or single amount, whatever you're comfortable with, whatever you think the show is worth, which maybe is nothing. In which case, ouch, if you think this is a valuable part of your week, then we would appreciate the support so we can continue to give you the quality that you came here for in the first place. Thank you for considering supporting Riverside Chats and enjoy the show. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Maria Corpus. In China, the phrase to eat bitterness means to persist through hardship without complaint. Artist Jennifer Ling Dachuk used the idiom to title her collection of new and recent work, comprising ceramics, textiles, video, and other mediums. Dachuk is a Texas-based artist of Irish and Chinese ancestry. Her work explores the intersections of her own identity, as well as the role of women in global labor inequality. Through material culture, the history of craft, and by championing the handmade, Dachuk challenges the social, political, and cultural systems that continue to hold women back. Eat Bitterness is on display at Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts through September 17th. Later in the show, Joshua LeBure will review the HBO film Reality, the true story of an NSA whistleblower. Here's my conversation with Jennifer Ling Dachik. I am so happy to have you here with me today, and you're about a week into installation, if, if that's right, at the Bemis Center. How's it going so far? It's going. I'm starting to see it all come together something that has lived in my head for maybe years and then been working with the fabulous team at Bemis for a year to kind of put it together. So what are all kind of the elements that you're using for this exhibit and where did the idea kind of stem from? I am, I often say I'm trained traditionally in ceramics and then one of my students one day asked, what does that mean? I'm like, you know what? I don't even know anymore. <laughs> but my primarily my medium is clay. And it's I focus a lot on porcelain clay because I'm interested in the history of porcelain and how it's deeply rooted and discovered in China over 2000 years ago. I work with all the associations of whiteness and this pure white material. I use that that kind of that desire for white material that fueled this desire all over the world is a metaphor for whiteness as a privileged racial class. Mm. I work a lot with hair, synthetic and human hair, real hair. And that is kind of considered like the black gold of the world. So it mirrors the white gold value of porcelain in its height of its history. And then I work with kind of a lot of pop culture, cultural references woven into personal story, history, oral stories, lived experience. And um, kind of really um, employing feminist strategies to talk about um, our lived experiences. I'm so excited to see it. Uh, So it's called Eat Bitterness. And tell me, we all know what eating is and what bitterness is, but tell me about what that means uh, in your own culture. Um, Eat Bitterness is a Chinese idiom that is often inherited by us, taught to us, told to us, and it's the idea that you swallow suffering. Mm. 
And it's something as a 40-something-year-old Chinese woman that I'm actively trying to unlearn. But I also think because it was taught to me, I feel like I work with so many groups of people. I am entrenched in so many different communities that every single one of us has eaten bitterness at some point in their life. And I think part of using this Chinese idiom in a way is to reclaim it and to find a way to like not eat bitterness anymore. What does it look like to you to reclaim it? I think it's to acknowledge it, acknowledge where it's come from and that I can also stop it. Yes. So we recently, a few episodes back, had another artist on Charles Kay, and he is a Thai American. And we really talked about kind of the historical aspect of, like you said, it's what we've been taught. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically as Asian immigrants, the both of us were just kind of talking about how our parents and our grandparents uh, suffered so much again without complaint. Mm-hmm. And so to see that again and to hear that again brings me back to that and the theme of Asian Americans coming here and having that mindset mm-hmm. of, I'm not going to complain. I'm just kind of kind of going to get through it. You put your head down and you work really hard and you be humble. And I think it leaves no room for celebration or acknowledgement of your hard work. Or And I know whenever I think back to my experiences growing up and my cousins, we talk about this all the time, is we really just wanted our family to tell us they were proud of us. You know, forget the I love you. We kind of, <laughs> you can't negotiate too much, but like. One you, step at a time. Yeah. You just want to be told that they're proud of you. And I think like I am the daughter of an immigrant. My mother is from mainland China. My father is white, but grew up in Ohio. So I embody like the pressure of the American dream, but also American exceptionalism. That's like so like to the heart or root of like being in the Midwest And so all that pressure, but it's also so relatable to, I think, like my friends who are like moms for the first time and really being confronted with like how hard it is to navigate working and being a mother and just trying to find time. Like we all um, swallow that suffering every day. And then when that culminates, like it's not good for any of us. No. And there's so many different dualities that we all try to live in. And Mm -hmm. I like to have the conversation of in my own head of because I'm also half Filipino, half Mm -hmm. white. And how do you kind of heal the colonizer in the colonized in my body and bringing that all up or just as a community, as immigrants? How do you kind of, you know, ring wrestle with that idea of I'm both these these dual things and healing those two together? I think to. And I, I don't know if like you share this similar experience is like I used to get jealous of my friends who were half, but their dad was the Asian one because they carried the last name. And then it's like all this like nitpicking of like who has it better as <laughs> someone who has to really um, they have one foot on either side. And then um, I confuse the hell out of people with my last name. And then um, Dachuk is um, Polish, um, but I didn't really grow up Polish. And Ling is my middle name. And that's like, I kind of feel like it's partly part of my Chinese name and I want to keep it. <laughs> um, so it's like my stage name in some way. Um, I'm always so, like putting up a wall or a battle or the, getting ready for the question of what are you? Mm. And that is like the biggest question I negotiate in my work. And I think about that with every material. Whereas like my my Chinese cousins, my full ones, um, whenever people ask them, where are they from? It's like they're always treated as perpetual foreigner. Whereas when people ask me, what are you? I feel like they're treating me as an object that Oof. needs to be authenticated. Yeah, validate yeah. Your, our experiences. Yeah, yeah my, I, my dad is the Filipino one, so I did get that last yeah. name, but I, I mean, we can go all the way. I know. It's like, the Spanish like colonization, yeah. and it sounds Spanish and all of it. Yeah. But, you know, there's a lot into our, in our names and in our representation. And where you mentioned you always get prepared to respond to, like, what are you? Where are you from? Where did... How does that make you feel for people who may may not know or may not get asked that question? I know. I think and I've always lived in places where people don't look like me. It's like in like small towns in Ohio or even in like 
Massachusetts, where I went to grad school, and even in San Antonio, Texas, like, I think people racially don't know how to place me because I don't look like what the stereotype or what has been always portrayed as East Asian in the media. I am a little bit darker. My family's a little bit wider. We're, and also, I have to explain that China is huge, <laughs> and people look different all over. Um, and when I was little, I used to get really upset because you just kind of want to blend in and feel like you belong. And then I went through a phase where like, I was really angry about it. I'm like, you're gonna ask me this. I'm gonna make you sit here with me. I'm gonna explain my whole life story from the very beginning. <laughs> and that's when people are like, oh no, uh, yeah. And also I think it was a way I wanted them to, to see me as human and to also like listen to my experience. And then now I don't owe anyone any explanation. No. That's like really kind of where I'm at now with it. How has that all come through in the work that you've done from when you were younger to now? How has that kind of been incorporated, That th the thought of self throughout your work? It always starts from there. It always starts from, like, I feel like it always starts from a microaggression, <laughs> which, um, and I think then it kind of sets me off to start thinking about how that applies to materials, like the dualities in materials. So porcelain is often perceived as really fragile and delicate, but like your toilet is porcelain, so it's really strong. It also negotiates different class structures when you think about the porcelain teacup that you would like drink with your pinky up in the air or the privilege of having access to a clean toilet. Um, so I think about that, um, negotiating dualities in my practice. And I think like tying it to like, I don't often want my work to hit the zeitgeist, but it does. And so like, I was also thinking a lot about labor in my work and it was coming at a time during the pandemic when we were seeing people who were generally unprotected and unsupported in the world, like people who work for tips or um, the service industry, um, the demand to open up nail and hair salons at the early beginnings of the pandemic because people wanted a haircut. But so that's where like things start kind of coming together and really talk about the current cultural moment. If you're just joining us, I'm with artist Jennifer Ling Dachik, whose exhibition Eat Bitterness is on display at the Bemis Center. Join the conversation on social media. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on an upcoming show. Okay, so let's go back a little bit because I'm always interested to hear about the uh, close ancestry of our guests. Um, and you kind of mentioned your immigrant uh, journey here, but tell me, tell me about your grandmothers because that seems to be a theme for you uh, in your artwork. Yeah, I had this really amazing opportunity to do a residency at the John Michael Arts Center in Sheboygan. John, I had a really great opportunity to do a residency at the John Michael Kohler Arts Center in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, and it's the arts industry residency where you work at the Kohler factory. The Kohler factory makes sinks, tubs, and toilets. Wow. And this has been a dream residency of mine because I always grew up knowing that both my grandmothers worked in factories. So my papua, my Chinese grandmother, worked at a sewing factory for a major, major American retailer in Chinatown in New York City. And then my um, Irish American grandmother was one of the first few women to work the assembly line at General Motors. And I think about how they had two very different lives, but each of them faced oppressions in different way. My papa, political oppression, and that is why she came to the United States. And my Irish-American grandmother, Ruth, often would hear, come back and when you have your husband's permission. And like, I think about how strong and amazing they were, how they would swallow bitterness all the time to show up for their jobs. And how really women and immigrant women really are the foundation of Made of America. And so I wanted to celebrate them in this story. So when I did the residency at Kohler, I felt like I was part of the assembly line too. So I made lots of really large and small porcelain megaphones, like cheerleading cones, 
And so you'll see those in the exhibition and they really represent like whose stories are we telling, whose are we amplifying, and then whose stories often go silence or sit in silence. Mm. How do you see your grandmother's stories kind of going further, playing out into that art? How has that kind of changed the way you even exist in, in knowing that they ate their bitterness? It made me think about what bitterness I am always <laughs> eating. <laughs> I really, I think for me to undo that was to tell their stories because when we hear in the news everything about American labor, the fear of China and their labor policies and politics, how even I think about the phrase that we often hear when things are made in China, we often equate it as something as cheap or of poor quality, but it is something we all live with because if we want things to come fast and easy and on demand and at cheaper prices that we are all benefiting from the global inequalities of the world. And so I really think it's important to tell that story, but to also tell the people, also to tell the story that what does American labor look like? What are we fighting for? And I really think my grandmothers were a part of a time where that was really celebrated, but I never heard their stories told in that, that way. Mm. Were they able to kind of tell you their stories when you were growing up? You know, that's something like I I think every generation wishes they sat and, um, and like had the opportunity to ask these questions now. I like... I remember visiting my papa and her factory in Chinatown. I remember it was so loud. And I think because the sound of industrial sewing machines and like a whole room full of them, it made me think about how that's probably why she talked so loud because she couldn't hear. <laughs> um, she was just so loud when she talked. Like we grew up in like a three-story like uh, apartment complex in Brooklyn. And I swear I could hear her from the, the top floor. She was just so loud. And then um, for my Irish grandmother, Ruth, I just remember she was always really proud of her car. Like she drove, but my grandfather never drove. And I know it's because she, she bought it. Oh my goodness. Like that's kind of, I think about that time. And like she bought her first house when she was 19. I remember her telling me these things and not, I always thought, yeah, sure you bought your first house until now I realize how hard and rare that was. Oh my gosh. And, and the freedom I'm sure that brought her too. Yeah. But I think also, she, I don't think she, I don't know. This is also me like thinking back that brought her freedom, but I think she felt bound by marriage mm. and children. <laughs> I, you know, like I kind of think back to the long conversations I'd have with her. And I think she felt like she had to do that. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it was part of her obligation yeah. to her family too. Yeah. So I want to go back to kind of the porcelain that you were saying you work with. Talk to us a little bit more about that history. And I'm always interested in hearing about why artists work with the materials that they mm -hmm. do. I think for me, like porcelain was, it's truly the material that is the connection to my Chinese heritage. And I've, I've visited Jindijin, China, which is considered the porcelain birthplace of the world wow. um, about four times. And I think I just love the dualities that the material holds. I love working with clay and that it's extremely malleable material and I can make it be anything. I love that when it's fired and, and the vitreous of it is gone there's no porosity in it. It's almost like glass. So it has a density that I, I really love. And I think it's like always kind of one of the main goals of my practice is always to deestablish the hierarchies of materials. And like, I think that's why I'm really into clay-based practices, porcelain, craft, women's work to show that these practices are just as valuable or on the same level as like contemporary fine art. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, so when you say craft, what do you, what do you mean by that? Craft are materials often associated with women's work. So textiles, ceramics, glass, metals, the things that often, like I think 
even in the broader context in the 70s, most academic programs taught like painting and sculpture, but they never taught ceramics or textiles. And that that ceramics and textiles were often taught in like community centers or at the church's basement, because in the 70s, I felt like it was a way to keep women's hands working and to pacify their voices. Talk to me on the note of porcelain, kind of going back to at the beginning of our conversation, mm-hmm. how you to you, it represents kind of that whiteness and that hierarchy within race. Can you expand further on that too? Mm. So when porcelain was first discovered in the world 2000 years ago, and then as it traveled the Silk Road, and especially throughout Europe, it was the first time they'd seen a material like this. So there is years of kidnapping, espionage, um, murders, war, where they would like, hide alchemists or scientists or priests in towers and demand they come up with this this material not knowing that it came from this one part of the world and so marco polo has written about it in this like they don't under they didn't understand what this material was so it was like this white fever oh my goodness and it was worth more than the price of gold at one point in the world so I think about that too. And as a porcelain traveled the world and then blue and white pattern decoration happened on porcelain, which cobalt at that time came from like Prussia. So another Silk Road trade. And then you see how that merged with porcelain. And then that decoration traveled throughout the world. It became appropriated. So Chinese blue and white then started looking a little more German or Dutch, but there'd be some Chinese references. That's where chinoiserie comes along, which is the European appropriation of Chinese aesthetics. So I love like how these two major things I work with, porcelain and blue and white pattern decoration, kind of started in this area. And then as it traveled, it just like changed, became appropriated. So I think a lot about the appropriation of materials and imagery. And so that comes through in some of my work. And so I use that as a giant metaphor for whiteness. And I think even within my own culture, there's such a desire for whiteness because you are often perceived as someone who was of like higher nobility or status. If you were darker, you worked in the farms. Um, But also my family's from Guangzhou, so we never really had that conversation because they were darker. Um, But it was still always there. Um, I think a lot, too, how, yeah, I do have a white father. So in some ways, like, I grew up with the example to find love and beauty in the eyes of the colonizer. But things would come out, too, even within my own mother in that, she would tell me my nose was too big or my teeth were bad and I had bad eyes and that I inherited all my flaws from my white father. And that's a really hard thing to grow up with when you already are struggling with being a child. Yeah, being a child, being like a mixed race child in Ohio. So it took a lot to like unpack that. And also find love and acceptance and like, this is who I will be the rest of my life. I can't change. Yeah, being an adolescent and mixed race in this Midwest sphere is such Mm -hmm. an interesting journey. But to be able to have an art practice that helps heal that must be pretty powerful. Oh, thank you. I think, I know, I was just having a long conversation with someone who's like, do you see your art as therapy? And I'm like, no, I go to therapy for that. Like, I, I also want to set that that straight in that I don't know if it's necessarily healing. Well, I feel like it's healing through reclaiming. Tell yeah. me more about what that means for you. I think it's taking all these things and like shining a giant light on them. Because I think so often we sit siloed in our experiences. And I think once I started sharing this and also being really vulnerable publicly about it, that you realize you're not alone. And that is like the greatest feeling in the entire world is when you can make someone else feel seen. Absolutely. Yeah. I know. I I feel bad laughing at some of the things you're saying, but it's just because it, yeah. <laughs> I feel it so much. Yeah. And I think that's, um, yeah, when you find your community and you share these stories, it is kind of nice to laugh about it because I feel like in many ways 
it really shows acknowledgement of it yeah it's like oh yeah i've been there yeah i've been i've been where you're talking about yeah. and it feels good to to hear how other people experience the same things i did but in their own ways and the way you process all of that growing up and now yeah I'm talking with artist Jennifer Ling Datchik, whose exhibition Eat Bitterness is on display at the Bemis Center. Stay tuned for the rest of our conversation after this break. Hey guys, um, I am an Omaha native. Um, I am a current student at UNO. I'm majoring and double majoring in electrical engineering and computer engineering. But I plan to leave Nebraska after I graduate in about a year and a half for a number of reasons. But the reason that stands out the most drastically to me is that while I love Omaha and Omaha for the most part is a lot closer to being consistent with my politics, I won't even go into how insane it is that our mayor doesn't live here. The thing that stands out most drastically to me is that when that six-week abortion ban was up for debate and being voted on, I had made a preemptive, like a tentative appointment and seen a surgeon and been approved and scheduled a surgery to have my tubes tied were that bill to pass. Um, I have a medical condition that makes my periods very irregular, so it's very likely that if I were to accidentally get pregnant that I might not know that soon because it's not that weird for me to potentially not have a period for that length of time. Additionally, I was unfortunately sexually assaulted in December of 2020 and luckily I didn't get pregnant then, but if that were to happen again, you know, my life and my future would be at risk, you know, I can't control it is the point. And that's just one example. Um, I don't agree with the way the state handles gun laws. It's mainly that I, it's completely inconsistent with everything I believe in, in terms of politics and socially anywhere outside of Omaha and many places within Omaha. There are other issues as well, but that's the most important one to me. And that's the one that will make me leave to be honest. Hello, I'm sending a message about the statue in Memorial Park, the soldier and the nurse kissing. Um, When I first saw the photo that this statue was based off of, I thought it was incredibly romantic. And when I found out that they were putting up the statue Memorial Park, it made me really happy because I thought it would be just about the cutest day ever to go on someone and look at it together, um, which did not work out for me. But then I actually later heard that the kiss was not consensual, um, that the nurse, or I think she might have been a dental assistant even, that, yeah, she did not like it at all. Um, she's actually really uncomfortable to the point that once they rediscovered who they both were, both of the people in the photo, they interviewed them and she denied recreating it. And I, I just think that's fascinating. Um, but now, at least every time I drive past the statue, I don't think about my ex taking someone else on a date uh, there to view it. I think about how weird and just different your perception of something can be, how two completely opposing thoughts can be simultaneously true at the same time. Um, this is still like a very romantic photo and statue uh, when we're seeing it. Celebration of the end of war and hope and promise and all of that. So many people um, and it very much looks like that, but it's also a, a problematic and not at all romantic <laughs> and rather silly and it, yeah, complex. <laughs> Welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Maria Corpus. 
My guest today is San Antonio-based artist and ceramicist Jennifer Ling Dachik, whose exhibition, Eat Bitterness, is on display at the Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts. Dachik's work challenges the social, political, and cultural systems that continue to hold women back. Later in the show, Joshua LeBure will review the HBO film Reality, the true story of an NSA whistleblower. Here is the rest of our conversation. Talk to me about more about this labor, um, the labor part of your work. I know we talked about your grandmothers, but why is labor today something so important that you want to display in your work? Mm-hmm. I really think it was that moment of watching, of the moment during the pandemic of watching these protests happen at the scariest time where we still had no idea what this was. And that kind of desire I saw, this madness I saw in people because while people were living in fear, people really were demanding to get their nails done and get their haircuts and not realizing that the person that does that work, that labor, they often provide you comfort and care and they go without. And I think that really acknowledged something from my own family background is I come from a long line of service industry Asians, the ones that like gut your fish, alter your clothes, wash your clothes, raise your children, trim your cuticles. And I think growing up, I was maybe embarrassed by that. And I feel so bad for that now because that hard work and labor was able to provide some upward mobility so I can be here. And so I think a lot about that labor. And so I have to say too, like, there is so much in that care economy where that labor is performed by um, Asian Americans and no one considers the person behind the mask. And so I think in a way it's like humanizing that that labor exists to provide you some comfort and care and beauty. And beauty. Yeah. It's you know, it's so intricate for, I mean, even just like sewing on a button or like watching. Yeah. It's that that labor that you're talking about. It's, it's almost a form of love, yes, and art to mm-hmm. me. That's such skilled labor, too. And I consider that to be aligned with the ideas of craft, mm-hmm. which craft lives within like this fine base technical aspect of like manipulating material. But I feel like craft exists every day in watching you know, an auntie sew a hem or that kind of really, really intimate experience of having someone else trim your cuticles. I think about two of those moments where when you're getting a haircut and you're having just eye contact in the mirror and these are like complete strangers to you. And maybe I feel like I go to a lot of nail salons because I really do think, um, it's also for wherever I live, it's the one I can always find Asian community in a nail salon. Oh, absolutely. I can tell from like the handwriting on the front door or something. I know. And like I have different experience going than most people because often it's like an Asian auntie painting my nails and they'll go, where are you from? And that's OK, because I like this. Now we're <laughs> we're going to go. This is OK conversation. You can ask me where I'm you from. You can ask me. Yes. And like. I don't. My friends who go, no one will talk to them. Like they can go for rest and silence while getting pampered where for me, I learn this auntie's whole life story. And then we end up talking, where do you eat? Where do you go shopping? Um, so I think about that all the time too. I love that because I've been going to see the same nail guy for a while now because because of that, because we are able to just kind of kick it off and share our own stories and our experiences of being an Asian in America Mm -hmm. and what that's like. And I know I've never rested. (laughs) I've never rested there because I want to, I want to form that relationship, that bond of just that communal experience. Yes, for sure. And they deserve too to feel like they're part of the community. And I think that's where I mean, I know people that go to the same nail salon and they don't know anyone that works there and they'll go like, you know, every 14 days. Yeah. I'm like, 
hey ty uh is damon available uh -huh. like you know you know their names you want to know you know yeah. check up on them and i i appreciate that that you said that and i don't know when i when COVID was happening and i read uh, there's a long history of filipino nurses in yes. america and that they were the you know highest part of the nurse population that passed away because of COVID. And mm -hmm. so when I was reading up about you, it just kind of made me think about all of the the ways that, yeah, that all of that labor of love and of passion that is goes unseen um, and uncompensated yes. and all the... And how those really amazing Filipina nurses, their families went without them. Yes. Yeah. To, the, to stretch your support across... Mm -hmm people who are strangers mm -hmm. and having to choose between you know it's they're doing it to support their family but they can't support their family mm -hmm. you know the the sacrifice yeah the eating of bitterness yeah for sure and so even i think about with this art practice so i am so thankful to my hair helpers i had at bemis jay hannah and marco who like helped me do this really large installation over the past week of this really large red synthetic hair curtain. And then on the other side of it, it's a large synthetic pink hair curtain. And I really much, I very much think about that red curtain that a performer stands behind and you're unsure of the audience on the other side. And I think about when that curtain opens or when you cross thresholds, what can we do in our collective communities to help each other enter these scary spaces? So I think about when you go from girlhood to womanhood or when you're a person of color and you walk into all white spaces or when you're a woman and you walk into all male spaces, what can we do to help each other, arm each other with a little affirmation to keep going? And so they helped me so much with this curtain and I'm excited for everyone to see it. So why hair? Ooh, because hair <laughs> is an extension of the female body. It is a commodified part of our body and that women have been bought and sold all over the world since the beginning of time. The synthetic hair in the bright red, red is a color that like culturally it means good luck. I've grown up with my whole life. But I think we've also so violently lived with the color red the past presidential election and now looks like this next one. And, um, you know, our hair is an identifier. It's the first thing people see when they see you, that people make judgments, stereotypes based on the cut color and condition of it. Um, it's something we can kind of control and that we um, style or do because we want to be perceived a certain way. And so, yeah, that's why the hair. I like it. Okay, yeah. so how do you, you talked about, um, let me think, remember how you phrased it. You talked about preparing to enter into a new space where there might be unknown as a community. Mm -hmm. Have you found out how to do that? throughout this art process of how do we as a collective community address the fact that we may be in the audience when somebody else comes? How do you react or how do you prepare yourself to be the person going into a place where you might be different than everybody yeah. else? So along this beaded, this hair curtain, along this hair curtain, there are porcelain beads woven throughout it. And it very much is inspired by the macrame beaded curtains from the 70s during women's rights movements where um, ceramics, pottery, textiles were all taught in like community centers or basements. We were teaching women to keep working with our hands, but not to use our voices, not to be like burning our bras in the streets. So partly it's about de-establishing the hierarchies of these materials, but then also showing the weight of this curtain called thick, as you have to cut through this thickness. And adorned on the beads throughout the hair curtain are affirmations I've been collecting from people's communities. And I love that these affirmations come from all over the world. So I love the regionally specific ones. So one that I get in San Antonio all the time is you got ganas which kind of means you got balls. <laughs> um, it's kind of, um, yeah, regional slang, but um, it's something too I hear women tell each other all the time. So I, I love that one. And then like the ones like from Finland that someone um, 
sent in to me and that is um, one potato at a time. And that is the one I live with and I say to myself almost every day when I feel like I have too much on my plate or it's getting a little out of control and that I'm saying yes to too many people when I should be saying no. Um, and that is one potato at a time. And then I asked some of the staff members at Bemis what were some of their affirmations. So I'm always collecting, but um, I loved the one I got today from Will, who is an art handler and preparator, and his was, keep it simple and keep it stupid. <laughs> and I really loved that because I think there was like such a great sense of playfulness in that. And so that's what I hope when people are unsure of the audience they're meeting or unsure of a moment that this affirmation that has been spoken by so many people and been shared so widely that they can take that and like pause for a second and acknowledge that and it'll be okay. I love that. I want to have a little toilet book with all the affirmations. <laughs> Do you have an affirmation you say every day? Um, or when you think? Let me think. I will sometimes say buck up, which. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> and which sounds a little like swallowing bitterness a little bit. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm just. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. And then sometimes this is when I learned from my mom growing up because I was had three younger siblings and mm -hmm. would just be like, I'm bored she would say, you're in charge of your own fun. Ooh, yeah. And I feel like I really resented that growing up, but now that I'm an adult, I love it. Yeah. Because I can be really anywhere and be having a good time. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, That's you, great. what a fun lesson you taught me that I didn't like back then. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of my favorite affirmations I got came from a nine-year-old young boy, and it's in his little handwriting, and it said, be the boss of your own body. I like that one. I do too. I love that this young child was being taught consent at a very early age. But I feel like it's also a really powerful one that everyone can um, live with. Yeah. I I like that too because I feel like it expands even just like the familial hug. It's also yeah. kind of gets into your theme of labor. So I love this phrase um, that I read when I was reading the description of the exhibit, and it says that your work focuses on how women specifically embody time. What does it mean to embody time? It's very feminist for a woman's body to embody time. And I think how our bodies, we are so in tune with the cycles of the moon that we so live with this idea of every 14 days, there's a shedding and a rebuilding that um, the slow growth of our hair, whereas interesting fact is like Asian hair grows about half an inch a month where most people's grows a fourth of an inch. So if you think if time is money, um, so that's another marker of our time. And there are like little moments of that in my work that um, acknowledge like how our bodies have gotten through, uh, through the pandemic, how we've really survived this maybe we have i don't know yet um so far so far yeah <laughs> it makes me think of kind of what we were just talking about of the way that we give our bodies and our time to others mm -hmm. and the sacrifice that that looks like mm -hmm. of this may not be paid labor but in either my physical body or my mental mind is offering some kind of labor for the people that I love. Well, I think like in time, there's like the actual clock we live with every day. The 60 seconds, the minutes, the hours, the 24 hours in a day. But I think of like how we embody time through those, those actions of our body, like our moon cycles, how we're so connected to telling time that way to the slow growth of our hair, to the growth of our nails. Like, we are byproducts of time. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with artist Jennifer Ling Dachik, whose exhibition, Eat Bitterness, is on display at the Bemis Center. Join the conversation on social media. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Or you can call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on an upcoming show.
Rachel Adams, who was a curator for this show at the Bemis, mentioned that your work opens the door to unpaid labor related to the roles of women and people of color that they have to assume during uh, due to the structure of society. Uh, just to kind of end with, what are some of the actions that you think that we can take as individuals and a community to restructure this? I think, well, one way I think we can do this, and I know it's really hard to give like a blanket statement to this. So That's someone okay. taught me something really important was I have this burning desire to change the whole world, but start first small. So I'd like for everyone to think about the objects they live with, like maybe the figurines they live with in their home that maybe they inherited or a plate with some kind of weird imagery or like a porcelain knickknack you have in your house. Think about where it comes from. And I want you to treat everyday objects as monuments to overturn. It's really, I'm sure you all have a knickknack that or when you go to a, a thrift store, rescue them all. You know, like there are so many racially insensitive, misogynist, sexist objects in the world. I want you to treat them as monuments to overturn. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me and for sharing collective experiences. Yeah. So where can we go? Um, your exhibit's going to be up until September? Yes. Uh, and then where else can people follow your work that you're doing? You can find me on Instagram at jenniferlingdachik or my website, jenniferlingdachik.com. Okay, perfect. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here. To end today's show, here's Joshua LeBure reviewing the new film Reality about NSA whistleblower Reality Winner. The new Max original film, formerly HBO Max, directed by Tina Satter, Reality is a shining example of how a minimalist approach to filmmaking can create a gripping, emotionally resonant story. The film tells the true story of the uniquely named Reality Winner, a whistleblower who in 2017 leaked classified government documents to the news website The Intercept, revealing Russian attempts to derail the 2016 presidential election. Satter's direction and screenplay are based on actual government transcripts of conversations between Winner and two federal agents investigating the case and interrogating their suspect. The film primarily takes place during a few hours of Winner's life, as law enforcement officials tear apart her house shortly after she arrives home from grocery shopping which is revealed in a very effective scene of reality pulling up at her home as two agents walk up to her car window and knock. That scene sets the tone for the rest of the film. One of the most striking things about the film is its restraint, which gives us a sense of claustrophobia and creates an intense atmosphere that keeps us engaged throughout. The hyper-focus on the search and questioning allows us to experience the situation in a way that feels deeply disturbing and uncomfortable. Sydney Sweeney, as the title character, anchors reality with a masterful performance. Sweeney shows us Winner's quiet vulnerability while keeping her anger simmering under the surface. The real person the film is about was not an obvious candidate to blow the whistle on a conservative government. She's a gun-owning, ex-military CrossFit fan who loved her country and hated seeing what it was becoming under an increasingly extreme administration. Josh Hamilton, as Agent Garrick, is also perfectly cast. Hamilton's background is primarily in stage work and small independent films like Noah Baumbach's Kicking and Screaming and Francis Ha. He's at home in this film. He matches Sweeney's level in the full embodiment of the characters. Agent Garrick has to play the role of good cop to earn Winner's trust in order to get the information he needs to make an arrest. Hamilton walks that line so deftly that at times we start to believe that he's actually on her side. Reality packs a thought-provoking punch in its 82-minute runtime. It's entertaining while also encouraging reflection on issues of government corruption, whistleblowers, and the First Amendment. The film has a dreamlike quality. It's a bit ineffable, allowing us to witness Winner's detachment from the situation while processing the implications of her actions. Reality is a must-watch film for anyone interested in true stories of whistleblowers and government corruption. It's also a masterclass in minimalist storytelling, anchored by a powerful performance from Sidney Sweeney. And it's sure to leave a lasting impression. Look, you've had a good career. 
I don't think you're a big bad master spy. I think you just messed up. I think you might have been angry about what's going on. The Russians attacked our democracy. Before the, the election, they didn't attack. Reality. Were you surprised to see us today? We are concerned with the leak. Insider threat. This is my partner. What partner? Wally Taylor. Hey, how are you? We have a search warrant for your house. Oh my goodness, okay. Would you like to see it? Yes, please. 125 pounds, you guys. Flatter me. Sorry, I have a sense of humor. I was on your driver's license. That's right. Okay, well, I lied. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> Reality. What if I said that you printed out classified information That document has made its way outside of NSA. And the most likely candidate is you. I think you know a lot more than what you're telling us at this point. I'm trying to deploy. I'm not trying to be a whistleblower. That's crazy. Now, why I'm here is to figure out the why behind this. Look, I'm here. Reality. 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 Was there something that just pushed you over the edge on this? Reality is now streaming on Max. For KIOS, I'm Joshua LeBure. Riverside Chats was created by Tom Noblock and is a production of 91.5 KIOS Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Remember, you can find the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. I'm Maria Corpus.